Welcome back to the Truth Perspective. I am Harrison Cayley. Joining me are Elon Martin. Welcome back, everybody. And Corey Schenk. Hello there. Some people, like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and those guys, seem to think that all of the world's problems come from religion. And when confronted with a counterexample, some, like Sam Harris, um, in response to someone saying, oh, well, what about communism? Weren't they a bunch of... Um, you know, goddamn atheists. And what do you think about that? Someone like Harris and, you know, other people like him will respond by saying basically that communism was kind of just another religion or words to that effect, pointing out the similarities between the, the system of communism and other religious structures. And by doing so, I think they essentially set up a, a logic, a way of thinking in which anything that I think is bad is religion. You know, any structure that that produces mass atrocities or anything that I think is objectively bad is religion. So therefore, communism can be a form of religion, and that proves my point that religion is bad. On the other hand, you have some, or many, religious people who would counter that religions aren't bad. In fact, religions are good, and it's only, you know, individuals, perhaps, that make religions, or give religions a bad name by committing atrocities in their name. And... I think that both have some good points. There are good points, you know, on, on all sides. And the the two positions don't really come together to meet in the middle. At least it's very hard for for those two positions when arguing to, to find some middle ground. We saw that, of course, in the debate between uh, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson, of course. But they did find some middle ground. But I don't think on the points, on the really kind of basic points... Um, which we'll be discussing today, because there is a third position, you know, one that takes into account the positions of both, while at the same time rejecting some of the arguments on both sides, and that comes from Andrew Lobachevsky's Political Ponderology. So today we're going to be discussing another chapter in the book, this one, the chapter on Pythocracy and Religion. In previous shows, we've covered the introduction and the chapter on Psychiatry and Psychology under Pythocracy. So we're going to be talking about religion this time. The chapter is very short. It's only, you know, a few pages. I don't know, maybe five pages, six pages. But there's a lot packed in there. And maybe to start out with, I'll just read the opening paragraph, which is kind of a doozy. It's a kind of typical Lobachevsky uh, density. But I want to read the first paragraph, just to give a little introduction, and then maybe I'll kind of paraphrase some of it to, to get across some of the concepts. So he starts out by writing, Monotheistic faith strikes a contemporary thinker primarily as an incomplete induction derived from ontological knowledge about the laws governing microcosmic and mac macrocosmic material and organic and, so and psychological life, as well as being a result of certain encounters accessible by means of introspection. The rest complements this induction by means of items man gains by other ways and accepts either individually or in accordance with the dictates of his religion and creed. A soundless, wordless voice unconsciously awakens our associations, reaches our awareness in the quiet of mind, and either complements or rebukes our cognition. This phenomenon is every bit as true as whatever has, be has become accessible to science thanks to modern investigative methods. So right there, he kind of gives his, his background perspective like worldview on how religion and science kind of fit into the world. And that's the perspective from which he comes when then discussing 
how religion interacts with the phenomena he discusses in the rest of the book that, you know, being ponderogenesis and pathocracy primarily. So maybe to just kind of paraphrase that into what I think he's talking about, to just to give a bit of that background and to see where he's coming from. He talks about monotheistic faith, monotheistic faith being like an incomplete induction from the knowledge of the physical laws, essentially. Now, this is something we've discussed or at least alluded to on our shows about philosophy and religion and uh, even in the shows we did on evolution because this is one of the arguments probably one of the one of the most commonly used arguments from um, like theists so actual like religious people but as well as people coming from a more scientific or um, philosophical background as a way of arguing for the existence of God that's why he's talking about monotheistic faith here. So what is it, what is an argument for the existence of a single God? Well, and that is like the um, the the argument from the order of the universe that there that there is or there are what we can see to be regularities in the universe, laws by which physical matter operates, and working all the way up, right? So it's not just material uh, material reality that seems to follow certain rules, but also you know organic life and the psychology of, of humans. <clears throat> there are certain ways in which we think, there are certain ways in which things behave, certain ways in which we react to influences from around us. Um, it's all a series of causes and effects. And one traditional way of accounting for that system of order is to ascribe it to a universal God or a cosmic mind. And it's, to, well, not to get into those arguments, because that's a subject for another show, um, it is at least, you know, uh, an argument that is made very often and made well by some people, um, particularly David Ray Griffin in his book, uh, God is Real But God Is Not. <clears throat> so there's an incomplete induction because uh, you can never be, I think he means it's incomplete because you can never be quite sure. It seems to be an induction that you can make from like uh, a conclusion you can draw from seeing these facts about the world, but without there being any kind of slam dunk proof, right? And that's where the atheists come from. They say, oh, well, until you can show me God, you know, in a, in a Petri dish, um, <clears throat> it's, it's not a, a conclusion that I'm forced to make, you know, by, uh, by necessity. And Lobachevsky adds that in addition to that, we have the, the information gained from inside. So that would be an external conclusion about the world and the phenomena of the world. And then, but we also have evidence gained from, uh, from inside, the, the internal milieu, as Dabrowski would put it, or just our minds and our, our spirits, as, as others might put it. And he goes on to give examples of that. Uh, well, he calls it the, the soundless, wordless voice that unconsciously awakens our associations. In a previous part of the book, um, also describing his kind of scientific slash spiritual outlook, he talks about that. The, what, how, how when you trace the, the source of associations, the source of mental phenomena back, for certain thought processes like that, you can trace it back to a point where you can't find any cause. And we can think about that uh, just in terms of like um, of novelty in our thinking. We've brought up novelty several times in the show. There are certain thought processes where when you trace them back, it's like, well, where did that come from? Where did that thought come from? It, it seems to have no source in the physical world or the, the, the known world, the world of known causes acting on you. There seems to be a source of something new in certain mental processes where you're left 
with a mystery. Well, where did that come from? Did it just come from nowhere? Well, that doesn't really make sense. So you're, you're left wanting for an answer. And again, that's some of those questions and some of the, and the nature of some of those experiences would lead many to, to conclude that there is something either supernatural or, you know, extra mundane, something that is not just rooted in the material world as we think about and as we think about it and as we study it from like a scientific perspective. And when all those are put together, that's when you get the creations of like individualistic philosophies or spiritualities and uh, and collective spiritualities, which become religions, to the point where we have a, a series of or like a trinity of of monotheistic religions, for instance, that are that's practiced by billions of people that are you know collectively are are practiced by billions of people across the planet. Of course, there are non-monotheistic religions as well, but. Uh, Lobachevsky doesn't talk so much about those, and so we won't either. Unfortunately, maybe another, maybe maybe another time. <laughs> and that's that's where he's coming from. Basically, is that he's open to the to the the possible like ontological reality of something spiritual. At the very least, he's open to the idea that there is a mystery uh, about uh, humanity, about about psychology, even that hasn't been explained and that potentially can't be explained by simple, or not necessarily simple, but by the known scientific um, ways of observing and describing what we call like psychological reality, for instance. So he actually goes further, pointing out that in his mind that, um, that these two realms can actually meet. So I'll, I think I'll read the second paragraph as well. He says that, in perfecting our cognition in the psychological field and attaining truths formerly available only to mystics, we render even narrower the space of nescience, which until recently separated the realm of spiritual perception from naturalistic science. Sometime in the not-too-distant future, these two cognitions will meet, and certain divergences will become self-evident. It would thus be better if we were prepared for it. Almost from the outset of my deliberations on the genesis of evil, I have been conscious of the fact that the investigative results concisely presented in this work can be used to further complete that space which is so hard for the human mind to enter. So there he's basically sharing his hope and his, his conviction that it is possible for the scientific and, um, and religious spiritual worlds to meet, and that in fact they are coming closer, and the, the more that we have discovered about psychology, has, well, the more we've discovered, the closer we've come to kind of reinterpret, or, well, finding again and possibly reframing the knowledge that has come from the, the great religious traditions. And I think we've, you can find that, for instance, and let, let's, just to give one example, all the research done in the last, um, let's say, 20, 30 years about the, the adaptive unconscious and the like techniques of self-awareness and um ba well basically what these amount to is uh, a psychology of virtue um, which can trace back to philosoph the philosophical traditions of like the stoics and but very similarly to this to the exact same principles in like early christianity for instance and those those ideas, like you can find the ideas everywhere. And one of the examples we like to to, to bring up because you know we're fans is the is Gurdjieff, the you know early twentieth century Georgian Armenian mystic guy who uh, who was like probably one of the most insightful commenter commentators and critics of human psychology. Um, 
of his time and a lot of what he's said back then, like almost 100 years ago, well, he was talking 100 years ago, is, again, just being um, like re rediscovered in mainstream psychology. Things about, like I said, like Insight. Like next week we're going to be discussing a book um, called Insight by uh, Tasha Yushin, I think her name is, or something like that. All, all about self-awareness and basically the, the idea that most of us have no idea, have, have no real insight into our own behaviors or the way we appear to others. Some do, but for those of us who don't, who are usually in the majority, that that technique can be learned. And that was essentially the, the basis of Gurdjieff's thought. So with that in mind, Lobachevsky looks at the phenomenon of religion um, in terms of what he's writing his book about. So that's like political evil. So what, what happens in a pathocracy in, in relation to religion? And he breaks it, down, breaks it down into two main areas, like well, two divisions of two. So he gives examples of pathocracies that develop in uh, an atheistic manner, a secular manner, and that would be an example like communism, and also pathocracies that develop in a religious like substrate, a religious culture. So, you, so basically, he says, you can have religious pathocracies and secular pathocracies, and he gets into the, to the specifics of each of those. So that's why I said that he kind of finds a middle ground between the hardcore um, like religious people and the hardcore atheists, because he'd agree with the atheists that, yes, um, some religious uh, like political systems have, been, uh, well, have committed atrocities, and there's a reason for that. But also, secular systems have too, have as well, and have persecuted religions for very similar reasons. So we're going to be getting into that. Uh, with that said, any more introductory thoughts, or do you guys just want to take off from there? Um, no, yeah, let's just, just take it off. Let's do it. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting about uh, his idea of real, of how uh, polarization occurs in in religious movements is the span of time that it that it covers and how he discusses the fact that if you are looking at your religious institutions today and you see some sort of a corruption or any or you know something going on this what's actually happened you know the actual polarizing element might have uh, taken place generations uh, generations ago into mm -hmm. the, you know far into the distant past mm -hmm. and that what you see you know like what we see today in regards to you know different schisms and everything at least in the um, Catholic tradition uh, it can you know be traced all the way back to you know like Martin Luther you know the Protestant uh, Reformation and how those things uh, play out on such a large scale of time because of how important religious beliefs are for humanity. Mm -hmm. And they, it takes a much longer time for it to pervert the original religious vision because of how much uh, energy people put into uh, maintaining that, you know, the sanctity of those traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were a couple things that stood out to me about that time, time duration thing, because to get into just a couple of the specifics he mentions, one is, is that... Not only does it take a long time to pervert like a religion, um, I guess you could say religions have a very, a very strong, um, very strong defenses against um, against being like eaten from within. But also because of the like what Lobachevsky would call the kind of eternal primeval truths that they um, manifest or that they kind of exemplify, that also means that 
that a pathocracy, a religious pathocracy, can last for mm-hmm. ex- extra long periods of time. And the reason for that is because, as he mentions, well, as he shows in the book, in, a, in any given society, the, the number of people who actively support a pathocracy is a tiny minority. You know, anywhere from the, like the small single digits to the low double digits. So maybe like, you know, 2 to 15% at tops. But um, he gives the example of 6% being what he personally experienced in Poland. And because of that, when you have a large society that has been following a religious tradition already for generations, you have a, a, pretty, a pretty unified, like, homogeneous culture that is always going to have a majority of people who follow the, the religion in the traditional way. So when you have something new that gets entered into it, or some kind of like pathological um, addition into the into the religious kind of ideology, and even if that ideology becomes the norm to the to the point where there is what Lobachevsky would call like a pathocratic government, you're still going to have a majority of people that are following the old ways, and that probably are then going to oppose the 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 leadership, even if they are they um, like. Even if they, them, even if the leadership says that they're of the same religion, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, they might be called fakers or or um, you know, uh, frauds or posers or whatever, and and so that in itself, that, that presence of a large majority of normal people, that acts as a a, a constant um, a constant source of of tension of resistance to to that. Um, you know, perversion of the original ideology. So what you'll get is you, you, you the, the pathocracy can't last for too long because of that, um, because there always will be this ma- this majority that outnumbers the 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 minority of pathocrats. But at the same time, those perversions that are entered into the the religion have a tendency to stick. And if they've been there, you know, so if, let's say they get introduced like 500 years ago, well, they might, they might still be around for the last 500 years, and they're always waiting, um, and they're always having an effect. It may just be this minority effect um, that, you know, only certain people, only a certain minority of the, the group for that 500 years will be kind of susceptible to that kind of, um, you know, pathological suggestion, but it's always there waiting to be exploited, and so you can have resurgences of this kind of um, ponderogenesis if those materials aren't like identified and like rooted out from from the ideology. So that's the that's kind of one of the weaknesses of religions is that he that he points out, and he again he divides it into two. You've got the religions who have acquired pathological material over the you know over the centuries that while many would that many people over the centuries have just kind of ignored or interpreted in their own ways, but which still act as a kind of Trojan horse for any pathologicals that would, um, that might have the motive and the opportunity to exploit them. But there's also the possibility that the religion had that, had that, um, that material there from the beginning. So he gives a kind of a prognosis for, for different religions. He says, if there is a religion that has, pathological material from the beginning it it is hopeless like there's nothing you can do to fully get rid of those pathological tendencies on the other hand if you have a, a tradition that started out relatively pure and the, the 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 pathologies have kind of like accreted to it over the generations those accretions can be 
successfully removed, and you can go back to that original revelation that he calls it, or and that can be successful. But he at least leaves open the possibility that some some traditions may not be able to um, to go there to to actually root out the the pathology because the pathology is is mixed right in at the very beginning. I don't know if that's necessarily necessarily true. Um, what it would all depend on, you know, regardless of which category you're looking at, is the willingness of the the the, the people, like the congregation and the the religious leadership themselves, to like repudiate part of their past. Mm-hmm. And he points out that too, that the natural reaction of religious bodies is to perceive any criticism of their history or some of the materials in their in their doctrines as a threat to the religion itself and to even react violently. And just one more comment on that, even that reaction itself is a normal reaction. That's a reaction of normal people to a perceived threat. So we might look, you know, ex, uh, atheists or re- critics of religion might look at like a, a, self, a self-defense uh, from the religious body itself like that, uh, like a, even a violent self-defense as itself being pathological which might be too, true to a degree, but it's not pathology in the same way that like a pathocracy is pathology. It's like, it's the self-defense model of, uh, you know, religious warfare. It's, it's like, no, we see this as a threat and we, we want to protect ourselves and protect our, our traditions. So then they fight for it. But then what Lobachevsky points out is that that action, that fighting, that, um, that kind of preoccupation with one, with one's own, um, with the, re- the preoccupation with the preservation of the whole tradition is what then acts as an opening for the very ponderogenesis that you know that most most religions should be on guard for, and so then it's that violence that opens the door for those perversions to then enter again or for new ones to enter. Yeah, that's one of the pernicious effects of religion that I think Sam Harris or you know commentators like Sam Harris they they pointed out and that's they're they're right in the mm-hmm. in that sense is that you know if you look at uh, Christian history and how only recently has the you know real uh, critical uh, historical study been applied to the Bi- uh, the Bible and the Gospels and how much uh, those scholars themselves themselves still keep that knowledge to themselves. And how uh, a lot of priests and pastors who know a lot of information about the Gospels, they keep all that to themselves because mm-hmm. they are protecting their position in society. They're protecting, um, you know, what they probably think they're protecting their congregation. And they want to make sure that, you know, any uh, critical information about the historical accuracy of the Bible is kept um, from people. And to a large uh, extent, I, I can understand why. I mean, you, you definitely, I mean, it, it's kind of patronizing, but then a lot of people probably deserve to be patronized. Um, you know, that's just the way people are. They don't, you know, they can't handle really complex uh, questions when they're applied to something as important to a person's identity as, the, you know, that tribalism that the religion provides. But, you know, at the same time, you, you also lose what the religion was providing in the first place by doing that, you know, but the, the original religious vision is lost, 
and it continues to you know kind of slide downhill it doesn't provide the same amount of protection it doesn't draw as many adherents because other people outside the tradition look at it and they think well that just looks like a bunch of you know that doesn't solve any of you know today's issues you know they you know you see a bunch of people uh, circling the wagons and you think well i'm going to go someplace else and uh, it, yeah, in in the long run, it is it's self defeating in the interest, in my opinion, in the interest of preserving what they are actually uh, eroding. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a few more paragraphs I think from this chapter, um, pathocracy and religion, that uh, speak somewhat directly to what you just said, Corey. Um, Lobachevsky begins. He says, "Acceptance of religion's basic truths." opens to man a whole field of possible cognition wherein his mind can search for the truth. At that point, we, we also free ourselves of certain psychological impediments and gain a certain freedom of cognition in areas accessible to naturalistic perception. Rediscovering the true ancient religious values strengthens us, showing us the meaning of life and history. It also facilitates our introspective acceptance of phenomena within ourselves, for which naturalistic perception proves insufficient. Parallel to our own self-knowledge, we also develop our ability to understand other people, thanks to the acceptance of the existence of an analogous reality within our neighbor. These values become priceless whenever man is forced into maximum mental effort and profound deliberations in action so as to avoid stumbling into evil, danger, or exceptional difficulties. If there is no possibility of apprehending a situation fully, but a way out must nevertheless be found for oneself, family, or nation, we are indeed fortunate if we can hear the silent voice within saying, quote, don't do this, or, quote, trust me, do this. We could thus say, that this cognition and faith simultaneously supporting our mind and multiplying our spiritual strength constitute the sole basis for survival and resistance in situations wherein a person or nation is threatened by the products of panerogenesis, which cannot be measured in the categories of the natural worldview. This is the opinion of many righteous people. We cannot contradict the basic value of such a conviction. But if it leads to contemptuous treatment of objective science in this area and reinforces the egotism of the natural worldview, people holding this conviction are unaware of the fact that they are no longer acting in good faith. So right there, Lobachevsky uh, is setting up a, a kind of a, well, he's affirming what's most positive and constructive and uh, nourishing about religion, which I think is a good thing. Um, also speaks to how uh, within an individual, you know, those religious inclinations or, or intuitions or access to, uh, let's say, the cosmic mind or, or um, higher values is this kind of intuitive value uh, that religion at its best can provide um, a connection to. Uh, but he also is affirming, I think, the idea that without an understanding of pathocracy uh, as it exists in the world, or panerogenesis, um, that you can't really have a religion that's going to be as constructive 
and as life-affirming as it might otherwise be. Well, I think he's saying something slightly different, but along the same lines. It's not that the religion itself wouldn't be as good. It's just that, like he said, says elsewhere in the book, or in the chapter, that it's not religion's job to explain pathocracy. And he says that no religion, you know, explains, um, no, no religion explains these concepts. And that uh, it is the, the, the purpose of religion to basically reach for the higher spheres, and it should be the role of science to describe the lower spheres, you know, the, the more earthy level, as, as he calls it. And that um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a, a fault inherent in religion as religion, it's just, well, kind of is. It's the fault of religion is that religion doesn't deal with these subjects, so um, so they don't have any kind of built-in um, foolproof foolproof method of dealing with it, and that really you need both in order in order to have um, like a a society that is immune to the effects of like ponderogenesis. Well, on that note, we did a show. Uh, a few years back on the powers and the principalities. Mm -hmm. And I forget where that information comes from, if it's part of a larger official religious text or not. But I recall it being the closest thing a religion, a religious text came to describing uh, evil forces mm -hmm. uh, and the, um, the, the, the importance of identifying them and finding ways to battle them. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's probably one of the more obscure ideas um, within religion, but it's there nonetheless and seems to be one of the kind of closest things we have to um, a defense uh, or, a, or a mode of, um, of looking at uh, evil as it exists in the world, whether it be political or social or cultural. Um, and I thought that was a, maybe we'll revisit that at mm -hmm. some point. Yeah. Uh, it's been a while since we've discussed it, but, uh, but, it, but interesting, uh, that it, that it would come out as this kind of religious, uh, warfare, mm -hmm. uh, that was righteous and, and actually based on something mm -hmm. and, and comes close in some ways to, I think what Lobachevsky is getting at here. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's interesting because it, it sounds to me like the that was really the one of the core driving forces in early uh, the development of early Christian communities. Uh, you know, it, after the Christianity became the official religion of Rome, um, you know, a lot of Christians decided, well, you know, now that Christianity has become official, and it, you know, now it's been a, a co-opted into the power structure, we're going to leave and we're going to form our own, you know, I'm going to go and be a hermit or whatever. And it was really a driving force behind asceticism and monks and then the the creation of Christian communities. And, you know, numerous, numerous texts that they wrote sound a lot like the, the text that you're discussing, which is how to face, you know, what they called the demons. But, you know, in, you know, modern terms, we would, you know, probably call negative emotions or, you know, your personal programs or all those sorts of things and how they would face them with, um, you know, with prayer primarily. A lot of the communities focused on prayer and, um, and yeah, that was the, that, there was this early psychological awareness, this really, this huge vision of, of another world, of another way of being. Um, and 
uh, I think a lot of them felt when they saw uh, Christianity, quote unquote, get co-opted, um, you know, then it was the power structure now, you know, now it was part of the, the patriarchal tyranny, <laughs> you know, that was uh, that they, they, uh, they, they rejected that. And I think that was one of the, that was, is one of the early schisms that we've had in the history of Western civilization. Um, that you you know we're talking a little bit about how uh, the churches uh, kind of fail to uh, you know to uphold those religious values, and I think there's a natural entropy inherent in any you know human institution that you have to live with the political bodies at the time that you're creating the church, that you're sustaining the church, that any time that you're you know this church or whatever it is exists, it has to um, function. Alongside this, uh, this very earthly, you know, kind of materialistic, real political type, um, you know, governing body, and yeah, Lobachevsky talks about that. That that's one of the ways that churches be- can become corrupted, and one of the ways that there is an opening for ponerogenic activity to take place is by them. Uh, kind of acquiescing to the whims of whatever political ruler there is mm-hmm. at the time. And I think when you look back at history, the, you know, the idea of, the, of Christianity, I think, uh, and as it was embodied in the Catholic Church, had to have been quite uh, a sight to behold. You know, the idea of Jesus Christ, you know, give, uh, give uh, all that you own to the poor and then, you know, go out and whatever. And then you see the popes and, you know, looking at the time, you might think this is hypocritical. You know, you know looking at it now from our awareness, we, would, we could probably say that this was a dominance hierarchy, you know, that there was, there was a need for pomp and circumstance circumstance, there was a need for power relationships, and a lot of, you know, what's been written about, you know, the evils of the Catholic Church, a lot of it has been, I, I think, from what I've just been reading the past month, a, a lot of it has probably been overhyped, but sure, there was, you know, corruption and, you know, power politics involved, well, I but think, I think that that in and of itself really opened up for a mm-hmm. polarizing within the Church because of that that hypocrisy that almost built in to the very fundamentals of the idea of the religion itself. Mm-hmm. This idea of being an anti, um, anti-rich, you know, pro-poverty, you know, give all, give everything you own and then go live in, in the, the, in the desert and pray, you know, and then the, and then trying to simultaneously build a dominance hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, around that idea where it, you know, it's, it had to, um, I think that right there was provoked a big mm-hmm. schism in the history of our thinking, which is, which could, you know, kind of explain why religion has lost so much force mm-hmm. today. Not saying that that was the original uh, message of Christianity, because I think that from what we've researched and what has been written, well, Laura Knight-Yachik especially, and um, I can't remember the other historians about you know Caesar uh, being the original, Julius Caesar being the original inspiration for the Christ. Um, you know, I think you know there was uh, that that original inspiration wasn't isn't necessarily what we get today at all in any in, by any means, but you know through the naturalistic method of researching and, you know, digging away and finding what that original um, message was, what that original inspiration was, we do today have at least some idea of the real force behind Christianity that could have, um, that wouldn't have been as, as confusing as, as what's the, what's the right words? 
as buggy, I guess, as bugged as the idea of Christianity that we received. What do you think about that? Well, I wanted to go back to something you said just before that. Okay. About the um, the kind of the power hierarchies that developed in the in the church, and that being a kind of uh, the opening for a lot of the um, you know the perversions that have entered into the the well Christian religion. And I think I think one way of looking at this that I don't see many people I don't see many people taking this position is that when um, when atheists and critics of religion and and the history of religions look at you know bad things that re- that religious people did back in the day or even today, it's like they they are actually holding religions up to a religious standard, <clears throat> like they're actually adopting. A religious mindset, like a religious hierarchy of values, and saying you didn't you didn't match up to that. It's like you didn't live up to your full full potential religion, and then their conclusion is kind of faulty, I think, because then they say, oh, therefore religion is wrong when they were using religious categories to to make the judgment in the first place. So what they're actually seeing is just humans being humans. Like you set up a religion, and well, the reason that that it happens is because a religion is set up for a higher purpose. And they make that point about themselves. They they are explicitly on earth for a higher purpose. So they, therefore, should be held to a higher standard and should hold themselves to a higher standard. But then anyone looking from the outside will see all of their faults and all the flaws, and mis- all the flaws they have and all the mistakes that they've made and naturally say, you didn't live up to your, your own standard. Therefore, you're a, hypoc- you're a hypocrite. And therefore you know your religion was wrong to begin with well you know i don't think the the last point follows from the first points but what they're essentially seeing is humans behaving as humans behave and so forming a like a dominance hierarchy forming forming a power power hierarchy which any society does and it will be it will naturally be messy because any society that humans form is going to be messy there are going to be people behaving badly now i so i think on on the one hand it's just what we're seeing is has just been business as usual like any any religion any social structure this the same sorts of things wouldn't happen they would have different colorings they would have different specifics but you would see the same dynamics playing out that's the point lobachevsky makes about um when he talks about how communism came about came came about because of the particular conditions in which it was birthed and how you've had similar phenomena you know birthed in religious societies so you can have a religious pathocracy and, and an atheistic pathocracy but this gets back to the point about um, the the source of the contagion basically the 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 infection that that attaches itself to a religious body and that it, the, the point that he makes repeatedly in the book and I think it's one that that Jordan Peterson would agree with, and one that I don't think people acknowledge very often is that he, Lobachevsky says that every time there is ponerogenesis, the initial, the initial cause, the initial weakness has been a moral failing on normal humanity's part. Mm-hmm. It's not like we can blame everything on those evil psychopaths. Right. It's like, no, it's, every time it happens, it's been our fault. And he even says every time a, a pathocracy, um, you know, emerges in a society, it has been the religion's fault, the religious people's fault for not stopping it early enough. And so basically it's always on us because if we're doing our jobs right, if normal humanity is doing their job right, then there will be no opening for this sort of thing to happen. 
So we can't just like blame all our problems on those evil people because, you know, really, if, if someone's going to stop them, it should be us. You know, it should be the people that don't agree with what they're doing. Yeah. And really, that ties back into, again, this history of religious people doing bad things, religion, religions behaving badly, is, is that this, these have been normal people doing normal person things in, with all their flaws, and cre- that, that then creating the opening for something really sinister to enter in, into the system and make things exponentially worse. Again, this is something that I think that a lot of people don't acknowledge, is that th- naturally things go badly. Like the, the, the default state of the world mm-hmm. isn't, isn't even um, um, just, just like peace and serenity. Like, or it, maybe that's even too positive. The default state of the world isn't just um, like monotonous, um, boring, routine um, like stupor where where nothing good or nothing bad happens. The default state of of everything is things progressively getting worse, and it's only by pushing against all of those tendencies that you can first of all keep things the same, and maybe make things a little bit better as things go on. But the default state is people is is things going badly, and fighting against things going badly. You know, fighting to repair things to keep you know to just to maintain what we already have, that is a struggle, let alone making things better. So when we look back at history, what we see are things being maintained for some periods, things like falling apart just through humans doing what humans do. Mm-hmm. And we look back and we say, oh, those stupid humans. It's like, how could we ever have been so stupid and so immoral and uh, only thinking about ourselves? It's like, well, first look in the mirror and then then realize that, okay, well, that that's what happened. That's what humans have done. And what is, what is then the consequence of that? Well, the consequence has been actually a lot worse than the causes that got them there in the first place. Because even if you look at warfare, it's like, okay, yeah, war. Every, everyone agrees that violence is bad. War war is bad. It hurts. You know, people die. It causes immense suffering. That's not to say that every war has been unjustified or that you, there haven't been reasons for war. And... And then, so you you can look back at you know the history of warfare and and just um, take a very moralizing position on how uh, how immoral all these people going to war have been, but then you realize I think you have to realize that that has been a normal state of affairs for a reason. You know we can get we can potentially get better if we work really hard at it, but there have been things infinitely worse than just warfare. You know because some wars have been fought to prevent. Those things that are that are exponentially worse than just the the war itself. War is bad enough, and then you get something like pathocracy, which, in addition to war, makes everyday life miserable. Yeah, I think that's a really great distinction to be made between the everyday type of events that people witness and that you see throughout history, and then the the actual the real evil that can result um, when pornogenesis just runs its course and you get a pathocracy, mm-hmm. you know, which is the final ultimate stage, you know, as we, you know, when you, when people think about, you know, capitalism and hierarchies and wars and everything, and, and then, you know, the, you read uh, ponerology, you know, you I think your first, uh, interpretation when you know your first read of that book is you kind of start to see everything well then everything must be some kind of a pathocracy everything yeah. is is this, everything bad was everything caused by is psychopaths. bad was psychopaths um but no the uh 
you know the reality of it is is that these those things are you know they're they're bad they're moral a lot of it is uh, due to moral failings of one kind or another but pathocracy is is like you know comparing uh you know that to the demonic possession yeah. you know that's that's bad that's when things have gotten so bad the moral failings are so severe that society's lost its control it has lost its sense of up and down and and has decided that the word of a psychopath the word of a schizoid the word of of people who you know declare that you know that kids should be taught by satanists in in elementary school classrooms for diversity is a, a decent opinion they've lost all values and like you said that's uh, primarily religion's role. But as Lobachevsky says, religion can't tell you, or re the religion's job isn't to outline how ponerology works. That's been the job of, of you know, these uh, of scientists and uh, people pursuing, you know, investigative rigor. Whereas religion is supposed to, you know, tell us that, yes, life sucks, there's evil out there, but look, there is something higher that we can strive to, mm -hmm. and we have to. We, there's no choice. You don't get to decide, like, I'm not going to strive, because then you become that thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is so great about, you know, about Christianity, at least that, that original vision, is that sacrifice, you know, that people, you have a cross that you have to bear. Everyone has a cross. We're all guilty of sin. We're all sinners. We're all lowly, you know, NPCs in, in some way or another. But we can become something, mm -hmm. something more than that. And, um, yeah, that's a... There's, I think that's a great distinction to be made between the normal state of affairs and pathocracy. Ideally, uh, this book that we're talking about today, Political Ponderology, is going to affirm that there are individuals out there who are pathological, hence the term pathocracy, who are psychopathic in nature and who have a number of ways of persuading those who aren't uh, necessarily pathological, but who are weak in the sense of not being able to uh, discern uh, the differences between normal and pathological thinking uh, within themselves. So um, this is a this is a real attempt to look at how the individual uh, in can prepare themselves in a way psychologically to look at. Uh, how it is that pathological material, as Lobachevsky would put it, uh, or ideas um, or types of thinking uh, makes individuals vulnerable to such things that we would be discussing today, such as um, political possession or ideological possession. Um, but it, it, can, it can stretch forth through many different types of fields of thinking or, or behavior in the business world, with one's family, uh, in all different types of uh, areas of one's life. So like you were saying earlier, Harrison, it, in a sense, if you're not going forward, if you're not being proactive, in a sense, in being able to identify uh, some of these uh, weaknesses or, or ways of thinking as they exist in, in oneself, then we become subject to entropy, to to things being uh, or going on in a way that um, that leave them open or more subject to uh, evil uh, doings or forces, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's 
some of the reasons why political panorology as a text uh, is so important to look at. I don't know how familiar uh, some of our newer listeners may be with this, but uh, we've we've made reference to this book a number of times in previous shows, and uh, most likely will continue to because it it seems to address so many different um, things that we're looking at in the world today. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to bring go back to one of the points that uh, that you guys I think was in the in what you guys just said. Um, I made this point earlier too that no religion, you know, Lobachevsky points out that no religion actually has the kind of naturalistic language to describe like the macro social process of of panorogenesis. And like, you know, you don't have a um, any religion that lays out, oh, here are the different types of demonic personality disorders. And when you get this many people that combine with this many people and, and say these sorts of things in a society that's doing this, this, and this, then, you know, you don't get that kind of, like, uh, you don't get that kind of description. Like what you do get, like you said earlier, Alan, is like the, the powers and principalities. Like you get this kind of like mystical, symbolic representation of things. But um, like Lobachevsky points out, that's that's the natural worldview, right? That's saying, th- that's speaking of, of um, like earthly concepts in a kind of symbolic language that's kind of moralistic at the same time. Like these are evil, evil people doing evil things and we're engaged in spiritual warfare mm-hmm. against this. Whereas like Lobachevsky would say, no, this is a, like a naturalistic phenomenon. You know, like in the grand scheme of things, like metaphysically, there may be like a metaphysical correlate or, you know, a, a higher way of understanding these things. But really, like for us on Earth at present, it's like it, it should, the, the only thing that seems to potentially work is to approach it as a very naturalistic phenomenon. Um, you know, w- the way that um, um, I think probably Adrian Rain comes closest to this kind of perspective out of the people that we've, the kind of modern psychologists that we've talked about um, in recent years. In his approach to it, it's like you can't take a moralistic um, framework when looking at problems like this. Um, that just creates more problems. What you have to do is is just take a very like detached view of the, of things. Like here are all these criminals. What we naturally want to do is just you know send them all to to the electric chair. Um, like for all these violent criminals. Well, is that really going to work? Well, no. What what can we do to actually make things better as opposed to just fulfilling you know our our impulse for vengeance? It's like well. Here, let, well, let's first of all study these people. You know, instead of killing them all, let's keep them alive so that we can understand what makes them tick, and to understand and see if we can even re- rehabilitate some of them, mm-hmm. or to get them to the point where, like, or to find some some policies, some interventions that we can introduce, like bef- some preventative measures to introduce before people like this, who are maybe prone to these sorts of crimes, commit them in the first place. You can only do that if you take the detached view of like a scientist. Who will overcome that that impulse for for violence and for vengeance and for for moral justice to actually try to understand the thing and then come up with a solution? And so, um, so what, like Lobachevsky says, religions don't have that like built into their framework. Like their framework is it's focused on higher things than than um, you know scientific experiment experiments and you know research metho- methodologies and things like that. So the, one of the points he makes is that the the role that religions play um, is not in um, in kind of diagnosing and um, and curing the disease. It's actually in the regener- in the regenerative process. 
So he does he does point out like a, a natural kind of cycle of things where a, a pathocracy will develop and the um, like the system will become so oppressive that the, the majority of people naturally turn against it. That creates an internal resistance. People discover um, discover rediscover traditional values and truths that they had you know forgotten in the in past generations or had let slide. You know they'd gotten morally lazy. They rediscover these things, get a backbone, and kind of you know take their country back, mm -hmm. take their nation back. And then the role that religion plays in that is in the regenerative properties, the regenerative processes that then come into into play. So you can see that in in like uh, modern Russia, mm -hmm. where the church was persecuted for for like two generations, and now there's been a, re a resurgence of orthodoxy in in Russia, and uh, and so there's and the, the church has played like a regenerative role in Russian society, mm -hmm. and that's not to say that like that I you know I'm still when it like my default mode is still pretty like um i i probably have well i haven't done a tally i was going to say i probably have a lot uh, more in common with the like the atheist side of the of the debate than the religious side i don't know if those numbers would be accurate or not but maybe what i mean to say about that is that i i still do um sympathize with a lot of the atheist arguments about like the problems with with mass religions so like even then when I look at the Orthodox Church, like it still isn't something that I would want to become a member of because I see kind of like really the the things that Sam Harris points out and that even Jordan Peterson agrees that are you know bad about about mainstream religions, and it is in that kind of dogmatic doctrinal like thing where, oh, you can't believe that, right? Here are the things we believe, and here is how we believe them. And if you don't interpret things the way we do, then you're not a real Christian, right? I don't agree with that. Like so so I don't I don't agree with the Orthodox Church, just like I don't agree with the Catholic Church, but I can see the positive like things about it. I can see what it provides and the regenerative like um, role that it, that it has played and is playing in Russian society, for instance. Now, one of the one of the points that I wanted to make about that, as with religion as this regenerative factor, is that that also points out the why, if you go like full Sam Harris, well, that's a well, that's a bad decision to make because it is religion that plays that regenerative regener regenerative factor, and it is religion. Like in the the part the quote that you read out earlier, Alan, it is religion that provides the kind of resistance in um, in a society in a in an individual when confronted by evil. Like so, religion not it, it provides the initial resistance, and it provides like the 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 self development and the the virtues that are instilled that then um, make uh, make living under a pathocracy survivable, and it, produ and it produces the like regenerative impulse afterwards to kind of rebuild in a, in a better way. So all of these, it plays all of these positive roles without which, you know, you, humanity is basically left at the whims of this kind of like disease generation, this, this process of disease. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you're basically, by, by totally rejecting religion outright, you are it's essentially taking away your like immune system like your social immune system and uh, and leaving you open for for um well leaving a society open to disease like i think that uh, I, I think we made this point in a previous show is that for a guy like sam harris you know what sam harris is doing might work for sam harris but it's not going to work for the vast majority of people like it's like if harris actually believes that that his like way of thinking and his way of life is applicable to 
to a majority of people, then he's delusional. He just thinks everyone's like him, which is a moral failing in my mind is to, to assume that other people are, are exactly like you. It's, it's psychological projection. So I think that that, that approach is, is just wrong um, and dangerous too. And so this also comes back, to, well, there's also a danger. This comes back to what we said about, um, about religions kind of um, being resistant to criticism and to change from within or from without. Um, because the, one of the ways that Lobachevsky puts it is that religions and traditions, they overrate their own values. So their values are important, but they place them uh, like on a on a level that's unrealistic and and leaves out other like important values as well. Like um, and and he kind of compares this to just uh, like the process that goes on in, in an individual of the fear of uh, the fear of disintegration in oneself. So we talked about this in in previous weeks, just maybe even last week and or the or and two weeks ago when we were talking about positive disintegration, how, um, you know, people will have an image of themselves or, you know, they, they think they'll they'll be aware of themselves. Again, we'll get into this next week when we discuss insight. Um, but when, when, uh, when, there's a har- when they are confronted by a harsh truth about themselves, the default mode is that it's easier to reject that truth than to accept it and to experience that disintegration of, you know, one's self-image um, because it's hard to admit, to admit you're wrong and it's especially hard to admit you're wrong about yourself, and and because then you have to, you know, everything's thrown into question. You're thrown into chaos. Then you have to rebuild. You'll say, "Oh, well, that's not true." Well, then what is true? I have to find out what's true. It's it's a it's a a, a laborious process to go through, and it's actually quite painful when it actually happens. So, one of the um, that's one of the kind of downsides about religion. Like we said, because religion deals with these higher things and 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 naturally neglects neglects um, like a more kind of scientific like analytical um, view of the world and of of psychology and and social interactions mm-hmm. um, that that without the without the aid of like a, a ponderological perspective then. The, it, there's a danger in that kind of um, that kind of avoidance of of self disintegration, that avoidance of accepting criticism of of oneself and one's beliefs, and perhaps that is something that uh, that you know religious leaders can become better at. Mm-hmm. And and I think there are some like that. Like I've 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 heard YouTube talks and interviews with some like pastors and ministers. Who are who are pretty like uh, uh, pretty open to having like open and honest discussions and pretty open to criticisms mm-hmm. and don't get like super defensive and they're at least able to engage in a discussion where they find middle ground with the person that they're you know that, that they're talking to and um, they kind of like take the Jordan Peterson approach right or or at least open to someone like Jordan Peterson who may not believe all of their doctrines and their dogmas but they find that that middle ground where each works and then like a guy like Peterson can ha- have all of these other ideas that religions don't talk about. Like there's nothing in, you know, in the, the Catholic, um, uh, what's it called? I'm being a, cat- a bad Catholic right now. The catechism, like there's nothing in the catechism about like the wage gap. Right. <laughs> so you like, and I use that just, to, it's a dumb, a stupid example, but just to make a very simple point that there are all kinds of things that religions don't deal with that they don't have the answers for. 
it's kind of like a, a, a legal you know, a, a legal system where a new case comes up and there's no precedent for, for like a, you know, for, for a decision on the matter. Mm -hmm. It just, it's a, it's a, a new situation, right? There are tons of things about the world, um, um, like legal things, moral things, scientific things that simply aren't in the Bible. Like the Bible is not, contrary to what a lot of Christians believe that, you know, the Bible isn't the only book you need. There are, there are countless things that you can't get from the Bible and that you, you need to find somewhere else. The Bible may be able to give you kind of a perspective um, on how to look at these things and, you know, well, it can provide you like the, the, um, the value hierarchy from which to, to look at new things and from which to judge new things, but, you know, it's not going to give you an answer on the wage gap, right? And it's not going to give you an answer on the nature of symbology and, you know, the, the evolutionary development of, you know, archetypal relations to, to categories in the world or, the, you know, so you need to expand your horizons and that's why maybe getting back to your point Ilan, it's not necessarily that religions have to incorporate ponderology into their actual doctrines and dogmas but they can definitely talk about it mm -hmm. and they can just read the book and use the terms in the book right because they they're not uh if if they're open-minded then the the ideas in this book won't be contradictory <coughs> to their doctrines or their or you know or their dogmas it's just something kind of like external that is complementary that can be complementary and that's also a point that Lobachevsky makes is that he's, he was a Christian um, and he, w he said that he personally felt some kind of like um, hesitation and reservations that maybe the, like the course of his research and, and um, uh, well, in his research and thinking about this would contradict some of his like religious beliefs and, uh, and values. And he found that thankfully, you know, that didn't happen. In fact, the, his religious like sense of well, his sense of religion and his uh, th those kind of core core beliefs were even strengthened by the scientific knowledge that he gained. Well, along these lines, um, there have been a, a number of stories on Sot uh, in the past several months, past few years, which I think um, attempt to demonstrate, uh, if not religious leaders. Um, appropriating the ideas of ponderology, at least getting at it with their own intuitive uh, value system and understanding of the world as it exists versus you know, what, what exactly is wrong with the world. So uh, we had a story recently, Father Daniel in Syria. Uh, fake news is imposed with great enthusiasm in the West while channels of truth are closed. And um, so basically there's this uh, story of a Flemish uh, father who has been assisting humanitarian efforts uh, in the war of Syria, uh, who, who basically has been able to look at uh, the, the geopolitical uh, situation there and describe it as accurately um, as anyone uh, you'd read describing it, who, who is a, a journalist who is insightful, who has uh, a lot of information at their uh, fingertips. Um, and he is someone who is, he's not only being proactive about being on the ground and, and helping with humanitarian aid and bringing assistance religiously, materially to, uh, to people who are victims of the war, but he's also sending out newsletters and explaining things as they exist uh, in reality. Uh, so he's a, a great example, I think, of, 
of how, at its best, a religious leader um, is kind of incorporating all of this information and, and synthesizing it in the form of his words and his actions. Um, something he writes about in his late, one of his most recent newsletters. Uh, anyone who has any insight into the ever-recurring anti-Russia, anti-Iran, anti-China, anti-Brexit hysteria on the one hand, and on the other, Western unlimited war propaganda, justified by the most unlikely pretext to dominate the rest of the world, will soon find more reliable sources. It is also necessary, quote, for our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities of this dark world, which is a quote from Ephesians 6.12. And by our attitude, we are always either on the side of the murderers or on the side of the innocent victims. We are called to be people of peace and not silly servants of hatred and war, which we conveniently want to package in a message of peace. So incredibly articulate and, uh, and insightful, uh, this Father Daniel in Syria. In the U.S., uh, we have a guy named Pastor Chuck Baldwin, um, and he's, he has a radio show and has been writing articles for some years. Uh, most recently, he had an article called, Most Conservative Americans Who Identify as Patriots Have No Idea Who the Real Enemy Is. Uh, so he's a prominent American Christian conservative uh, who's been nominally, nominally involved in uh, politics in the U.S. And uh, he's one of the few outspoken individuals in the U.S. who's been able to identify as one of the problems Christian Zionism uh, or, a, or a kind of a blind, and blind support of Zionism on the part of Christians in the U.S. Um, that overlook a large uh, swath of information suggesting that they are being misled. Uh, by various things, um, and and has admitted uh, in many of his articles that he, in fact, has been misled for very years, for many years, until he kind of saw the dynamic uh, as it really exists. Um, and lastly, a little while ago, Harrison, you mentioned uh, how Christian Orthodoxy in Russia has uh, revitalized. Uh, reinvigorated the culture and society of Russia um, over these past 20 years. Um, so we have uh, Patriarch Kirill, uh, who is, who's been very vocal uh, in the past few years uh, in identifying problems that are not only of moral and religious concern to the people of Russia, but to people around the world. Um, most recently, there was a story uh, that he terms a global conspiracy undermines the orthodox world, where he discusses the uh, schism that seems to be occurring right now between uh, the, uh, the Church of Constantinople over Ukraine and the Church of, of Russia, uh, where he sees this, this kind of uh, Western-led influence over a separation between what, it, what would otherwise be a unified uh, Christian Orthodox presence in Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, so these are, 
these are guys who are writing about and discussing things on a on a very high level. Uh, they have been able to incorporate whatever understanding uh, they have through religion, through their intuition, through psychology, and through their understanding of politics as it's being used to uh, destroy and divide and separate people. Uh, and they've been able to make a lot of dynamics as, as we would come to see them very well known to a large number of people. So uh, three guys to look out for, I guess, in, in future articles. They're all outspoken, uh, and they all see things very accurately. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I think they're very admirable people who actually put their religious values uh, into practice. Uh, but I just wanted to get back to something that, just two things that you were discussing, Harrison. And one was religion's... Um, Regenerative, a regenerative factor in you know rebuilding society after a pathocracy or after any kind of evil event, and another is the lack of a bit of disintegrative activity that can, that occurs in religious centers, which I find to be really quite interesting and, and a sign of the moral failing itself. I think of you know probably uh, a lot of well a lot of religions in general because it seems to me that religion has all of the tools to guide people through the disintegrative process mm -hmm. and to me it seems like the language of religion the stories in, inherent in religion are themselves almost like that's their purpose mm -hmm. and it seems to me that if you were to just wipe the slate clean and start with a you know just whatever a brand new religion that on some level, you know, implicit, um, maybe not made explicit, but that would be one, one of the, the primary goals of the religion would be to, um, to take that disintegrative process to, uh, to, uh, to have a model for the, I, the higher personality that people could strive for or models, you know, like they do already. And then, um, then to, you know, the, to provide the language to explain the heuristics that people need in order to understand that, you know, they're suffering horribly, but, you know, there's an explanation, you know, there's something, there's uh, something to aim for. And it seems to me that throughout history, you know, like the, the healthiest and, you know, most uh, vigorous uh, religions had that. And that's where Christianity started out. I just wanted to read a text from one of the Desert Fathers. I believe his name is Saint Isaiah the Solitary. Um, I believe that was his name. Saint Isaiah. He didn't get out much. No, he didn't get out much. But uh, so this is what he writes. Um, he writes, so long as the contest continues, a man is full of fear and trembling, wondering whether he will win today or be defeated, whether he will win tomorrow or be defeated. But when he attains dispassion, the contest comes to an end. He receives the prize of victory and has no further anxiety about the three that were divided. For now, through God, they have made peace with one another. These three are the soul, the body, and the spirit. But while a man is still competing in the arena, he cannot be sure of victory. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about um, positive disintegration. And I think that you probably couldn't find a better description of the the um, the shift from being just an ordinary NPC into uh, attaining a multi-level um, multi-level transition process and then 
when he says you have attained victory, to me, that to me in the dispassion, I'm hearing that as you know you've attained your single solitary self, and that's what a lot of you know that's the goal, right? That's why you go out into the the monastery, or you know you join the Christian community, or you try to get away from the evils of the world, and you go to war with your with all of the 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 demons that you carry, all your baggage, all of your negative thoughts, you know. And these there's volume after volume written by you know monks and Christian authors, you know, that just dedicated to this. That's the desire. That's the motivation. And these days we have it, we've, we've articulated it well enough, like Dabrowski at least has articulated it well enough that it is, um, it's, you get rid of all of the super, uh, superfluous kind of language and the mystery. Um, but that's also what religion is kind of there for too, is mm-hmm. to keep that mystery there because mm-hmm. you need the mystery. The mystery adds an extra dimension of motivation that people absolutely need, and it just strikes me as, as, uh, as it seems to me that that is one of the main functions. And if you don't have, if you don't see that function in a church, or you don't see it happening, then you're you're looking at you know it's not quite religion anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still it's not possibly we could say it's not a. A higher level. It's a maybe a unileveled type, mm-hmm. you know, low level religion where you, it's just a you know you get together, you got a potluck. Mm-hmm. Well, that might be like it's the it's the maintenance level. Of it's religion, the maintenance right? level, right? So but it's not goal, pushing you. Yeah, it's right. not pushing you to the to the actual goals, the like the ends that are inherent in that religion, perhaps. Right. But it's it like uh, like Peterson would say, it's it's just keeping the social fabric together. Right. And that in itself can be a, a type of tyranny. It's not the it's not the worst type of tyranny mm-hmm. um, in the sense that no society can survive without it. But it's n- it's not living up to its full potential, right? It's not uh, not necessarily providing that extra push and that extra effort to, to 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 on the way towards that goal to to actually fulfill that that mysterious potential. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like when when whenever you have a situation like that, whenever you have a, a kind of stale. Um, maintenance religion, unilevel religion, it at least provides the the material for an individual in that experience, in that situation, to to find that um, that pull for themselves, mm-hmm. like to to see, oh, well, maybe, and it could even just be, you know, they they go to church and they don't really get much out of it, but they might read like one of the Desert Fathers, or they might read find a passage in the Bible, or they might just remember something that they heard it, you know, in a in a mass or a you know uh just some statement from their pastor or their priest or whoever that um that propels them on that that uh that um, you know that that journey forward and upward mm-hmm. um so the material is there it's like it, it just takes a little bit more effort to find it now ideally you know that material would be um for up front and center right but at least it's there in that situation but a lot of people would would like to tear all that down Anyways, and get rid of all of the all of the the, the potential sparks for for that process. Um, you know, r- just get rid of it completely, and that that would be horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a. Well, I guess that's a functioning. Uh, that's a, a healthy religion, and it's it's interesting that the religion itself, the religions themselves, always begin with with some mysterious event, some miraculous. Uh, happening mm-hmm. unless it's uh wahhabiism <laughs> well, that, you know I, I wasn't sure if i wanted to go there but uh because because uh, i don't know enough about uh about uh like islam and wahhabism but like it would the, the fir- 
Yeah, this might be controversial territory, but um, I'm wondering when Lobachevsky talks about you know some religions that are have gone like that, that are kind of like <laughs> have the the seeds of panergenesis like built within them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can find some of that. Well, I'll I'll be uh, an equal opportunity basher here and say that perhaps you can find those seeds in in like the Quran, the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you know, part of the Bible, and um, well, so you know, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Maybe they're all, in some sense, uh, you know, irredeemable. Who knows? But uh, at least that doesn't seem to be what uh, Lobachevsky is saying. But when you look at um, when you look at some of the the motivations for religious violence, and uh, and you see like the proof texts that are are brought to bear to justify those kinds of things, those tend to be the same texts that critics of those religions point to for the really the the reason why the religion is inherently bad to begin with. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess then it becomes a matter of for the practitioners of those religions how they would um, really understand those those texts because I, I think back to that debate between Harris and Peterson where or it might have might have been Harris and someone else where he was basically or it might have been with Peterson where he basically said okay well can we at least agree that when we look at a specific sentence like you know no specific comes to mind because I don't remember I don't memorize biblical sentences but uh, you know like you know if this person does this some relatively minor uh, infraction by our standards today then you know stone them to death you know on the hill or whatever it's like can we at least agree that everyone agree- can agree nowadays that that is wrong and that that is evil and uh and peterson at that point kind of like evaded the question before kind of getting to the answer and, and eventually he said okay yeah we can do that well okay so can religious people do that can a can a religious person can a christian can a jew can a muslim look at that sentence and say yes that sentence is evil we will not do that that does not apply now to us today or you know there may be two other options the the, the practitioner may say oh well I, I your interpretation of that would suggest that it's evil yes but it actually means something different well that's at least getting somewhere Mm-hmm. If you could say that every Muslim, every Jew, every Christian should agree that this doesn't mean to literally stone people, maybe it meant that at the time. Maybe it, uh, maybe people have been misinterpreting it since it's been, since it has been written. But the official interpretation is that you know whatever, and you come up with some kind of um, symbolic way of looking at it, like Harris is good at doing in a kind of like mocking sort of way, or you can get someone who looks at it and says no. That is actually good. We should stone those kinds of people. Well, yeah, and then you get into a problem of of um, of judging uh, societies by our modern standards mm-hmm. and and ignoring the complexities that went into the the construction of their moral code. And so you you have on like at least two levels. I mean, you've got the history of you know and the evolutionary history of that society and the kind of pressures that the people are under. And basically, how do you uh, how do you punish people? I mean, is there, you know, is every tribe going to have a Socrates <laughs> come yeah. out and then, and then, you know, shine the truth uh, on how to, you know, uh, apply the law equally? And, uh, or, uh, and so there's that one, there's the historical level, and then there's the ponological 
level, which is just as important, I think, it, probably the most important, because whenever they, you hear debates about the evils of just about anything, and they, and they don't have this kind of nuanced uh, or uh, this way of understanding or seeing evil, um, differentiating between the different kinds of evil, you know, differentiating between a pathocracy and, you know, and what we have today in the U.S., it's all, it just seems so lame. You know, it's like, I mean, like lame, like a, like a dog that has a bad leg, lame. Like it mm. just, it's just limping along and it, you, you feel like there's, it's mostly moralizing, which is what Lobachevsky talks about is that if when you go through religious history and, you know, if you just have the natural worldview, you know, which is, you know, informed, you've read the books, you've, but you don't know ponderology necessarily. You're not, you don't have the naturalist kind of way of going in and and dissecting and seeing what's going on. And then you have, you know, the greatest ethics and everything, but at the end of the day, what you're going to come away with is you're not going to have an explanation or a way of fixing the problem. You're just mm -hmm. going to have a, you're just going to say that was bad. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what Sam Harris, that's bad. That's yeah. evil. And then Jordan Peterson, he comes at it from a different angle and he says, no, there's this history of these people struggling. You have to be able to put yourselves in, the, in their shoes and understand what the kind of pressures that you must be under. I mean, because if you have, you know, if you live with, to a, you know, a, a big family and, and you know, you, you, what you do impacts that family. If you do something wrong, transgress against the moral code, your family is shunned or, you know, you, you lose honor. Um, you know, it's, you're going to obey probably some silly laws. And, mm -hmm. and if people are stealing goats and, you know, people are starving and everything, mm -hmm. then you might want to stone that person who stole the goat. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's, uh, so there's at least, like just, it's so complex that, mm -hmm. you know, it, and if, if you don't have that ponderological view, you really come away with this moralizing, just throw it all away. Mm -hmm. um, attitude. And when we look, especially at religion, you know, just in studying for the show, when you look at Islam, you know, just, you know, like the Wahhabi variant, because I don't know a lot about uh, the history of Islam, you know, going all the way back to the Quran. And you look at the history of Christianity, I mean, you see some major differences. But you also see why there are some major, major differences mm -hmm. in in the Wahhabi Islam, you basically had a schizoid team up with a tyrant, small-time tyrant, and then declare all Muslims infidels unless they believed your specific way of reading the Quran, mm. and then you went to war against all of them. And then... The, you had Britain come in and say, well, golly, you're really mopping up, so here's some money and guns. And then, you know, you probably had France do the same thing, too, during the, the when they went to war with uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire with under Napoleon. And so you had this family and this tribe, they had this really good idea. They had the, the schizoidal ideas, and then they had the tyranny. And then they also had backing from outside because it was politically convenient. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you, and then they decided that uh, you can't smoke, you can't have a beard that's <laughs> too long to or too short. You can't listen to music. <laughs> You're going to get killed. You're going to be killed if you smoke or, you know, you chop off your head. Mm -hmm. And, and this is the main, um, this is the main standard of Islam that's both held up today you know, that we see that, you know, they're funding all of these Islamic crazies because that's their religion. And we say we go to war with these guys, but we're actually funding them. And, mm -hmm. be, and we, we actually like them and they're our friends and we won't even say anything wrong when they dismember and murder uh, dissident journalists mm -hmm. in broad daylight. We won't, you know, we're, we need them for their arms deals. 
And yeah, so you know when you see uh, when you see these how this kind of psychology can play out and how it takes these these kind of schizoids and psychopaths and we're different personality disordered people to get it going, mm -hmm. but then how they can be used and then how it can grow and and then you can see why there's such a huge difference in um, in terms of at least the you know the Saudi Arabian Islam that we see, and then the uh, you know like the kind of democracy, the pre-Shah democratic type um, uh, Iran or yeah Iran, mm -hmm. and you know there's just just being able to see it in terms of of how the beast actually operates and what it can look like, mm -hmm. and then you know also the kind of behind the scenes deals that our Western leaders mm -hmm. like to do with, with all of them. <laughs> well, to, to bring it back to the, the, the kind of ponderological perspective that Lobachevsky takes in this chapter, maybe what I can tentatively do right now is give all the major religions a pass for their original forms. Um, at least, you know, the original texts and say, okay, let's just give them a pass for now. And with the, the proviso that, all of the religions have shown them to shown themselves to be um, uh, open to infection and to to contain um, like those kind of pathological accretions over the generations over the centuries that then act as as uh, like portals that can be reactivated from time to time. But I would say perhaps that uh, at 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 least Wahhabism is one of those forms where from the from the inception of that brand of Islam, that it it, it itself is irredeemable, mm -hmm. and that um, so I w I don't see a way from from the stuff that I have read about Wahhabism, and um, and the way that in which they interpret um, like the Quran and the the kind of political system that they um, advocate for, um, I don't see any way of like lightening that. You know, and and bringing it into some kind of um, you know human standard for for our time and place, like right. and and even if we add a little bit of of relativism into the picture and say, oh well, maybe just like we can't really moralize about people a thousand years ago, maybe we can't moralize about people today who live in conditions that are so um, outside of you know our conditions. I won't necessarily go full relativism that everyone is right and nothing is wrong or right. Um, well, that, you know, that's contradictory, but I'll leave that. Um, that there is perhaps, um, what was I going to say? Even if we, if we add that little bit of relativism, there's, I think we can still find a kind of um, universal um, standard for cultures of today, right? Where we can objectively look at um, what the Islamic State was, you know, in Syria and Iraq, and say, well, that was just a textbook pathocracy in any time or place, particularly ours. It was like not only morally reprehensible, but you know, understandable in terms of these naturalistic laws, and uh, well, in terms of this naturalistic like science, panorology, a way of looking at things. And when when you look at the 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 kind of religious justifications that they had for the things that they did, which is very similar to what Saudi Arabia does. In fact, they say that Saudi Arabia is is uh, that they themselves, like the leaders of Saudi Arabia, are infidels because they don't go far enough. Right? They're they're not quite as hardcore yeah. as ISIS, but very similar at the same time. Um, that 
you know, there there just doesn't seem to be a way. Even looking at like polls from from you know um, from the people who ascribe to this particular like Wahhabist um, version of Islam, from stuff I've seen, it's like a lot of these a lot of the people like in ISIS, for example, would look at those texts and say, no, we interpret those literally, and that's the correct interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it's like at that point, it's like what can you what can you do? You can't you know you can't uh, you can't counter that, right? And um, so it is a like a very complex situation. And in fact, I was I was reading an article um, um, on like Islamophobia and anti-Semitism the other day, and pointing out the similarities between the two, um, because a lot of people who um, like today, pre, uh, a lot on the like conservative end of the spectrum, you have a lot of people saying that there's no such thing as as Islamophobia, but that there is such a thing as anti-Semitism. And then you've got people who point out the similarities between the two, say they're both real. And then you've got the like the people that say neither of them are real, right? There's no such thing as anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Like there, so there are a few different positions. But one of the the points that was made in this article was that if you look at the the criticism of Islam today, one of the approaches is often the approach I alluded to of looking at passages in the Quran and saying, look at this passage. Like, if you read this passage, it's clear what it means. Therefore, Muslims must believe this, and if they believe that, then they must be evil. Because look at what that says, and look at uh, you know, if someone believes that by our standards, that's considered evil. Well, that and the point that this guy was making was that that's exactly what the 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 anti-Semites of old, like Johann Eisenmenger, were making like you know, four hundred years ago or something. They were doing the exact same thing to the Talmud. Taking passages mm-hmm. in the Talmud and saying, "Well, look at what the, you know, what the 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 rabbis are actually writing and saying. Look at what they actually believe. Well, that's like reprehensible by our standards. It's like you know, like um, you can you can steal, kill, and and whatever to uh, a non-Jew, but it's only punishable if you do it to a Jew and and things like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and but the the modern like." Um, anti-anti-Semites would say, well, no, that's just taking things out of context, and if you actually talk to the rabbis, they've got different interpretations for what that actually means, and they don't actually put it into practice. And then you've got the same thing with, uh, like, um, the Islamophobes, or the, or, you know, well, all these different categories. Basically, it's just, um, I don't even know what point I was trying to make there, is that it's, uh, it's, it's complex, and, um, and maybe just, I can reframe it as just an example of a lot of the things within religious traditions that that um, should be open for discussion. First of all, that religious the religious practitioners of these you know creeds should be upfront about and potentially even well. I think I I just think it should be like full transparency. Like here's the worst things our religious compatriots have ever written, and that you know are in our official books. Like here they all are. Mm-hmm. Here they all. Here they are, all out there. Everyone can look at them. I, we just want to say that uh, you know we don't really practice that or believe it anymore. <laughs> and perhaps that would be a positive development, f- not only for th- for the religious practitioners themselves, but for their image in the world. And it would say a lot about um, about the people who would be unwilling to do that, or would, who who would just make excuses as opposed mm-hmm. to just being honest about it. And um, as for ISIS, well, that would be in, in you know the whole radical Islam thing. That would be a whole other subject, but you know a whole other show for the specifics. But maybe I'll just read um, 
um, a couple things that I wanted to get to that we haven't yet. Um, one is, so uh, just a, a paragraph from the chapter. He's talking about when a religious association succumbs to uh, ponderogenesis. And he writes that the religious idea then becomes both a justification for using force and sadism against non-believers, heretics, and sorcerers, and a conscience drug for people who put such inspirations into effect. So, um, when I read this chapter recently, not this late, latest time, but like a year ago, I mean, that's or two years ago, that's really when ISIS was kind of at their at their strongest. And being like the most in-your-face example of like a full-blown or like religious totalitarian pathocracy, I mean, you can see that right there. That's an, an exact description of of what happened in Syria and Iraq when uh, in in the areas under ISIS's control. So he goes on that anyone criticizing such a state of affairs is condemned with parano- with paramoral indignation, allegedly in the name of the original idea and faith in God, but actually because he feels and thinks within the categories of normal people. Such a system retains the name of the original religion and many other specific names, swearing on the prophet's beard while using this for its double talk. Something which was to be originally an aid in the comprehension of God's truth now scourges nations with the sword of imperialism. Mm -hmm. And just as a a kind of counterpoint to that, when that happens, um, he writes that, uh, getting back to one of the first points, that we made on the show, and Corey, you brought it up about the like, kind of like the longevity of religion and how it that makes it kind of like immune in a sense from from being taken over or at least resistant, um, and how so it's never quite fully successful because it can never um, it can never like brainwash 100 percent of the people. So he writes that uh, the there being the pathocrats, their propaganda proves overly primitive and brings about the familiar phenomena of immunization or resistance on the part of normal people, with the final result being the opposite of the intended moral reaction. So basically, there's this religious propaganda that the religious, like, uh, you could call them theocrats, um, are, are trying to instill in the, in the religious people, but the, for, an, for the actual religious people, it just comes across as primitive and just like... Um, unacceptable basically they see through it right away so it actually doesn't have the the intended effect and in fact it has an opposite effect he, because he writes that basically when you ha- when you instill even in a system like in soviet uh russia or you know the ussr where there was um um subver- subversion and like infiltration of the religious movements and even like in the in the eastern bloc um, where the, you know, they basically had agents in like the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church for what was left of it, um, that the these divide and conquer strategies when they're used on a religious population and like and to to um, to like antagonize different sects within a religion, the effect that it actually often has is to lead to unity between those sects. So it actually brings them together, and um, so that can even uh, well, and, and in addition to that. So first of all, we, we've got two effects, and now we've got a third one. So the first one is that people, in fact, don't respond to the propaganda. They, in fact, strengthen their own understanding of like the traditional values because it just seems overly primitive, what the pathocrats are presenting. They also tend to get along with more and unify with their previous like religious um, um, contenders and um, not necessarily enemies, but um, what's, what's a better word, like... Um, um, 
competitors. And the third one is that it actually that this process actually cures the the what Lobachevsky calls the ponderogenic survivals, that material that has accreted over the years that is that is still present in the in the dogma, uh, in the doctrine and in the history. Because through all these processes, by actually living through this experience, by living under a pathocracy, it has the effect of like strengthening the traditional values where the the actual like um, the the infectious stuff. Like it becomes, it, it almost becomes um, like the, its color becomes brighter. You see it more, and it's like, okay, well, I can really recognize that now. It's like, so it, I might just get ignored, or it might be like explicitly acknowledged. But it actually strengthens in a positive way the the actual religious tradition to the extent where you know, with even without a, a knowledge of pathocracy and ponderology, that religions uh, and religious people. Uh, and bodies can um, can actually cure themselves a bit of some of this stuff from their tradition, from their history, some of the negative stuff. And then maybe the last thing that I wanted to bring out, just one more quote. Um, this is on the kind of the separation of duties that I was talking about that uh, that Lobachevsky mentions about the you know religion being for the higher and you know science and ponderology being for looking at the actual nitty gritty. Um, he does give a, a counterpoint saying that such a separation of duties can never be quite consistent since the genius of evil includes participation of human moral failings, that's the domain of religions, and overcoming these based on religious premises has been the responsibility of religious associations since times immemorial. So basically each does have a role, right? So traditionally religions have been the put in the place of what a ponderologist should be, right? They, and they have done the things that a ponderologist could do, albeit to a lesser degree than they would with knowledge of ponderology. And um, a ponderologist is dealing with phenomena really having to do with spirituality and, and personal mm -hmm. human, human individual and social failings, which is the, you know, the domain of, of the religious people. So just again, how these two categories, how these two kind of... Um, um, like ways of approaching life and, and in general overlap and actually um, kind of complement each other. It makes you want the, your local church to have a ponerologist's office in it. <laughs> yeah. The office of the ponerologist. <laughs> he will see you now. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, yeah, that was a really good uh, summary of the, of the chapter. Uh, I just wanted to add uh, what Lobachevsky talks about when he talks about uh, schizoidal ideas and how you get to, you can taste you get a, used to their flavor, and he talks about the this basic schizoidal declaration is that uh, humanity is so evil that some you know some supreme power needs to be imposed over them to control their to just completely control people mm -hmm. and so that's the the schizoidal idea and i think that during like hard times especially during times of great you know evil imposed by pathological individuals that people can develop a taste they develop a taste for those kinds of ideas and where they're they're going um and what their their intentions are and the the kind of hypocrisy behind you know wanting to save humanity from themselves or whatever but religious institutions are also subject to the same historical cycles that you know the rest of society is you know succumbs to you know so that when times are good for uh, you know a long long enough time people lose that taste they lose that sense of what evil mm -hmm. what evil that evil even exists and so then you get, you know, like Lobachevsky says, a bunch of doctrinaire people who think that to solve all of the world's problems, they have this one simple idea, you know, just erase the patriarchy or, you know, 
get rid of the wage gap. You know, some they kept kill the this, infidels. Kill, yeah, kill the infidels. And then in that climate, schizoidal ideas become more uh, prevalent, and they spread. And then, and then you know, it's uh, then it's can lead to mayhem if people don't wisen up fast enough. But so he writes about three ways of approaching approaching these ideas, and I think we all come into contact with them every day. Um, and he writes that you can either reject them. And a lot of people just out will flatly just reject the idea completely, or you can critically correct these ideas, um, like a lot of people do when they're. I just watched a uh, an interrogation of Jordan Peterson by on uh, GQ, British D GQ, and it was, you know, it just sounded like the the girl was uh, she was either a complete slime ball. Um, which I think there's part she was partly, but it also seemed like she was critically correcting a lot of these pathological ideas. You know, she was adding her own humane kind of I, you know, I want everyone to be happy, uh, where you just basically take the pathological idea and you reinterpret it according to if that person actually cared, you know, and wasn't a power hungry monster deep to down. And then the third uh, way of approaching the idea is pathological acceptance, where if you're a pathological person, you know what they're writing about, and you mm -hmm. kind of get a sense. You're like, yeah, yeah, so mm -hmm. let's do that. I like that idea. Let's go to that Antifa rally, you know. And you get the character paths, um, the 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 people who have these, you know, massive moral failings or they could have some sort of deficit brain damage or something. And they, they're the ones who want to, they'll, they'll, they'll weaponize these ideas. They'll go out and now let's put them into action. And, you know, then that's, you know, pretty much what we're seeing today. But so there's the three ways of approaching the schizoidal ideas. And I think the thing that it's the, um, you know, he doesn't write about it, but the fourth is the ponderological um, the pornological way of approaching these ideas as a naturalist to get an idea of, um, you know, he writes about uh, people reading Karl Marx's original work and then just going through and trying to identify where the schizoidal flavor really comes through. And then you, you know, you, you pass it along to your friends or whatever and see if they can identify the same passages. You know, you just go through a chapter and you come up, you know, you see what was the schizoidal declaration. And um, I think that, you know, that just seems like such a fun exercise. It'd actually be nice to have a whole, like, not like a coloring book, but a whole puzzle book of, you know, just all these crazy people's um, sayings and then to, you know, to identify which one were schizoidal, which one were, you know, this or that, to come up with a whole lexicon for um, labeling these uh, this uh, disease, this disease of the soul. But anyways, that's all I wanted to say. I don't know if you guys had anything else that you wanted to add. No, I think we're running up on time. We already went a bit over. So uh, with that said, thanks everyone for tuning in. The book has been Political Ponderology. Check it out. It's available on Amazon. So uh, thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Take care.